from the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, this is Press Record, a podcast about the joys and challenges of learning history by talking to those who lived it. I'm Rachel Seidman. And I'm Taylor Livingston. It's Women's History Month, and we're excited to be talking about feminism and oral history. Today we'll be talking about how oral history can complicate the popular understandings of feminist activism. Today in our segment, From the Field, Taylor talks with UNC women's historian Catherine Turk about why oral history is particularly useful in understanding feminism. In our segment from the archive, we'll listen to a beautiful excerpt from a 2011 interview with Barb Green, part of our project on the long women's movement in the American South, and Evan Falkenberry chats with the interviewer, Jessica Wilkerson. In our segment, In the Classroom, I sat down with Kara Schumann, a student at UNC, who participated in a program I co-direct called The Moxie Project, Women and Leadership for Social Change. One of the things that becomes apparent in in speaking with with Catherine Turk about her work in oral history on on the feminist movement, specifically on the second wave of feminism, is how sort of messy, for lack of a better word, social movements, uh, and specifically in this case the feminist movement was, in that we we sort of think about these these big names in in all social movements. And for the second wave, you know, we think about Bella Abzug, we think about Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, but really her work, and I think the work of oral history, captures how much depends on the sort of followers of social movement and these sort of grassroots activists, to borrow a term that Barb Green is going to use later, and, and how much their work contributes to the success of these larger social movements. Yeah, and I think even um, this question of who's a leader and who's a follower gets complicated by these oral histories. Another thing that I think is so interesting about how these all fit together is this idea that feminist activism doesn't always look the way you think it does, not just because of who's doing it, whether it's a union activist or environmental activist in the mountains of Tennessee or someone working on campaign finance reform. None of those are necessarily the topics that you think of feminists as taking on. And yet all of these women certainly see feminism in one way or another as being critical to the way they think about the world, even if that's not necessarily a term that they have always adopted. So I, I think that when we put all of these oral histories together, we can really get a sense of not only who was involved, but what they were thinking about and how they thought about those issues and how their definition of feminist activism is often much broader and, as you said, messier than what we think of uh, and, and what the history books often tell us. From the field. So Taylor, tell us a little bit about Catherine Turk and your conversation with her. 
so Catherine Turk is a new women's history professor at UNC, and she studies second wave feminist activism. And in this segment, uh, Turk is going to talk about how oral history is particularly useful in understanding the nuances of the feminist movement. So, you know, oral history obviously is valuable in general for getting at sort of everyday people's experiences and instances where people who wouldn't necessarily be reflected in formal archives or in newspapers can sort of have their story told and understood. I think feminist oral history is especially valuable because it gives a sense of what feminism is that I think is in some ways more accurate than um, what students perhaps come to class thinking. Feminism is, is an everyday practice. It, um, it very much sort of springs from, um, from the ground up, from everyday people's experiences, from people um, who are not necessarily ever going to be famous or are not necessarily powerful in a traditional sense, right? It's just about sort of identifying um, inequalities that are sort of inequities in the world around them and trying to find ways, big or small, to challenge those. How do you use feminist oral history in, in your work, or, or you mentioned teaching? I write a lot about the 1960s and 70s, and so I do oral histories with um, folks who are in their 60s and 70s sort of reflecting back on earlier periods in their life and activism. And I think feminist oral history can be especially useful in terms of, of memory, right, of um, women who are sort of, well, men too, but women who are sort of advanced in their years, thinking back to a time when they were younger, maybe even closer to the age of you, the interviewer, thinking about what inspired them, what motivated them, what sort of injustices they noticed in their own lives, but also sort of what's happened since then. I found feminist oral history as a really good way to sort of open up intergenerational conversations about um, sort of the long second wave, um, if you want to call it the second wave, has has accomplished, did accomplish, maybe did not accomplish. Um, I find that um, feminists who were active in the 1970s are especially willing to um, reflect in pretty honest terms about what they did, what they thought they were doing, uh, blind spots in their approaches to their activism and their politics. And frankly, it's always inspirational teaching feminist oral histories and um, for students to hear these people's voices right, reflecting on the things that they did. They don't sound like superheroes. They don't sound like saints. Um, they sound like someone who would be your neighbor or someone who would, I don't know, you might encounter in the grocery store or something. And so to see that feminism really is all around us and it's not some other group of people or some other group of women who really, you know, who, who have been inspired by feminism and have become feminist activists. I mean, I always tell my students, they were just like you. They were 22 years old. They were trying to make sense of the world. They were trying to just... I don't know, make even a small part of the world a better place, reasoning from their own experiences and their own sort of notions of what feminism was. You mentioned that one of the, the beauties of mm -hmm. feminist oral mm -hmm. history yeah. would be to sort of challenge this monolithic idea mm -hmm. of, of what feminism is. So how yeah. do you see that play out in, in your work? Well, I think, be, you know, Becoming familiar with um, how historians have written about feminism and then entering an interview and sort of asking someone who was there about, well, you know, here are some dominant historical narratives about what this movement that you took part in was like. And sometimes they'll say, yeah, that sort of captures it. Uh, but mostly they'll say it was a lot more complicated than that. Or they'll say, well, from my perspective, it wasn't like that. It was like this. And so, um, I mean, if feminism uh, at its, root is really about uncovering and sort of shining a light on more and more um, different voices, right, and sort of believing that every voice is important. I think par part of the essence of feminism is to challenge any kind of monolithic 
ideology about what feminism is or was. Sometimes that can make it hard to really get a grasp on what it is, right? But um, I think that's that's sort of inherent to a, to the feminist project. Right. And do you see any sort of aha moments with your students when? Um, I can actually tell a great story about this. Sure. Um, I'm teaching a research seminar this semester about um, American feminist movements post-1945, and so each student in the seminar, each undergraduate student, is doing a 15 to 20 page research paper about some aspect of feminist life in recent American history. Um, and one student is writing about the Lollipop Power Press, which is a feminist children's book collective uh, here in the Triangle. One student um, sort of encountered uh, some correspondence between an author and the editors that she was sort of interested in and um, just decided to take it upon herself to try to find these people. And so she Googled the author's name, found her personal website, and just called her up. And so last week sort of reported back to me that she'd had an hour-long conversation with this woman who, um, whom no one had really talked to before about her involvement in the press. And this woman has since sort of uh, offered to connect my student to other authors that she knew from that time and sort of editors, people who were involved in the press. And so students have these aha moments all the time. And I think it, com it comes back to this idea that feminism and feminists aren't some foreign thing. They aren't people who lived someplace else or people who um, were somehow different. Feminists in the past are just like us. And so I see students sort of take ownership of this idea that feminism isn't some big scary thing or some foreign thing. It's like something that is in fact um, organic to, <laughs> to how many of us would think about our lives and how, how to make the world a better place. And um, it's very empowering for them. For several summers, researchers from the Southern Oral History Program traveled to Appalachia and particularly eastern Tennessee, where they collected nearly a hundred interviews with women about how they saw the women's movement of the 1960s and 70s. They didn't set out to find only women who identified as part of the feminist movement, more they were interested to see whether and how feminism unfolded in that part of the South. I'm Jessie Wilkerson. I got my PhD at UNC, my PhD in history, and I'm now an assistant professor in history and Southern studies at the University of Mississippi. And tell us a little bit about your interview with Barbara Green. Yeah, so I interviewed Barbara Green as part of the Long Women's Movement Project as I was doing field work in East Tennessee. I had learned about her from other women who were part of Mountain Women's Exchange. And that was a women's organization that formed maybe in the late 70s, early 80s. And they had GED programs. They had a thrift store. They were working, starting to work on anti-strip mining activism. And they worked on poverty and economic issues in and around Jellicoe, Tennessee, which is in the Cumberland Mountains. So I feel like I should describe the scene a little bit. She lives in an old farmhouse in the country. She, we sat outside for the interview. We were sitting at a picnic table at the, um, in a huge yard. And around the yard is on either side, there's a house, uh, it, the homes of her children. And then all her grandchildren are outside. So during the interview, you can hear her grandchildren screaming and playing and they were jumping on a trampoline um, 
And throughout the interview, family kept stopping by to see who I was and what I was interviewing her about. People were sitting on their porches. It was a very communal event. And towards the end of the interview, you ask her a series of questions about uh, grassroots feminism, what that means to her. Let's listen to a clip, and I want to hear your response to what she says. So did you see yourself as part of the women's movement? No, not at first. No. I saw me as part of the community movement. Mm -hmm. But as I kind of grew in my journey of activism, then I began to see myself. I had difficulty with the word feminism for a long time because I didn't really relate to what that looked like or what I thought that looked like because that was people who had read all these books and knew all these authors and they were all white women and they were all New York and they all, you know, um, seemed to be upper class and it, so I really didn't see any kinship then, you know, but kind of in my own journey I began to think about myself more as maybe a grassroots feminist, which was somehow different from that, you know? I mean, we part of that was true, but glass ceilings, really? What the hell does that mean? You know, what do you mean, you know, that you have glass ceilings? I, I don't get that. And what does that got to do with this author? I mean, I, with this book, I mean, I didn't have any relationship to my, to my life to my existence and my journey and so I think a lot of us kind of claimed the grassroots feminine feminism perspective can you say what can you describe grassroots feminism or define it or what you mean by it yeah I think it's I think grassroots women are more about place um, I think they're more about the land. They're more about family. They're more about, I mean, not that they don't care anything about that, but that's, that's kind of uh, justice, a real sense of justice, but it's not a justice about, necessarily about wages. It's not just economic justice. It's so, it's, it's a emotional justice. It's a, um, um, a way to be, a way to interact, a way to uh, fair, what a sense of, of fairness beyond me and mine, and um, uh, racial, I mean, racial justice and all of that, classism and all of that, kind of grassroots feminism encompasses all of those things, which was seemed and felt much different than what I thought I saw on a national level of these women in New York who are around all this economic, economics is only this much of injustice to women. Oppression of women, period, which on the grassroots level is, you know, you even in New York, justice, even mean? in New York, the oppression of women was different than what I saw mm. feminism being demonstrated as. Do you see what I'm mm -hmm. saying? wasn't oppression of, of women, period. It was oppression of women economically. And when you say economically, do you mean the um, 
higher end. Right, the professional women mm-hmm. wanting to become doctors. It was, yes, it was professional women. Not necessarily like... Not community women. Right, women in the textile No, industry. not those women. Not those women. Those women were never discussed in that movement until much later in the game. They were never, you know what, I, it wasn't about that. Mm-hmm. Um, environmental oppression of women. I mean, all of these things. It's just so much bigger than that. Uh, it was narrow, mm-hmm. and it was focused on upper-class white women, mm-hmm. professionals. Mm-hmm. And I saw grassroots as more people in the communities who are being, uh, it's a different level of oppression, mm-hmm. you know? And it's not just economic, it's, it's everything. Do you remember when you started to articulate that difference between those more upper-class feminists and, and grassroots feminism? And I love that that way of putting it, that phrase, grassroots feminism. Um, I think part of it, 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 it came, that came around the time of, um, after Nicaragua and while we were putting together in praise of mountain women. And that was kind of, we, in conversations, it was kind of a unified aha, you know, that a lot of us had come to about, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, we would sit for hours and have these conversations about why is it this way? And, and you would have one piece and I would have one piece and she would have another piece and she would have another piece and we just build on all that, you know, and we would go, And maybe I am a feminist. Because, you know what, really, let's define what feminism is for us, what it means to us, what that would mean here. And that's kind of mm-hmm. grassroots feminism kind of got born out of those kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? What, what stands out to you about what she said there? Mm-hmm. What stands out to me about her framing is how it really, it's really rooted in her experience um, having to do with a lack of reproductive justice when she was a young woman as part of her life um, and the struggles that she had. And and then when she moved to Tennessee, she she started to see this strip mining and environmental injustice and that had a big, so she saw that as a women's issue. She saw poverty as a women's issue she really identifies how the conception of the women's movement that only focuses on middle-class white women excludes so many other women who were also on the ground fighting a part of many really important struggles, but for some reason, they weren't captured in the media, they weren't a part of the, the narrative that was being told about the women's movement. But what I love is that Instead of saying, well, you know, I'm not a part of that, we didn't shape it, she claims it for herself. And she redefines feminism, she redefines the women's movement in a way that I think is more accurate, in a way that captures the experiences of many more women, and also hints at some of the exclusions of certain types or certain wings of the women's movement that were geared towards professional women or focused more on climbing the career ladder 
she lived in the Cumberland Mountains. There was no career ladder to climb. The issues that mattered most to her had to do with community health, had to do with economic justice and poverty, access to education. And I think that that, at least from what I heard in East Tennessee, that was the experience of more women than not. Um, and these were the issues that were impacting them daily and pushed them into activism. And they could see that as part of a women's movement. In the classroom. So, Rachel, I know recently you sat down with a former Moxie to discuss the impact of the program on, on her life. So could you tell us what the Moxie Project is? Yes, so the MOXIE Project is a program that I co-founded and co-direct with staff at the Carolina Women's Center here at UNC. In this program, students apply, and if they get in, they take a spring semester class on the history of women's activism, and then they have paid internships in local women's organizations. While they're in those women's organizations, they also undertake two oral history interviews, um, which the Southern Oral History Program trains them to do, and those interviews are deposited in our collection. We also meet weekly to talk about how the classroom learning, the internship, and the oral history, and how putting all of this together helps them bridge theory and practice. So I sat down with Kara, who was a first-year student when she took the MOXIE project. And as you'll hear, Kara got a lot out of the program. It was a class called Women of Color and um, Social Movements, and it was taught by Dr. Berger, Michelle Berger, who's a professor of political science and women's studies here at UNC, who's brilliant. Um, it really dove in-depthly to so many different movements that I hadn't even known existed um, from the Native movements in the 60s and 70s and 80s to um, Asian women's like social movements and their reclamation of their um, identities to um, Black women organizing. It just essentially really drove home how um, intersectional feminism is and how a lot of the histories of what women have done really aren't highlighted in the general kind of mainstream education we get. Like, I mean, it just talked about things that I had no idea existed. Um, it really impressed upon me the um, importance of knowing some in-depth, uh, like having a more in-depth understanding of history and intersectionality and the struggles women have gone through in this country outside of just the white feminist movement. And uh, it gave me a really greater understanding of how long and hard the struggle has been, I think, for women and women's movements. And then, so that was in your spring semester of your first year, and then that summer you participated in the internship section of the MOXIE project yes. uh, with a cohort of five other young women. Where did you intern that summer? So I was at Lillian's List of North Carolina and Women's Advance NC. Lillian's List of North Carolina is a PAC that is dedicated to providing early funding for progressive female candidates in North Carolina to get elected to office. So it's kind of like the national Emily's list. Yes, it's the North Carolina version. So I worked with them and then with Women Advance. That is a um, nonprofit that essentially seeks to educate women specifically and frame issues 
specifically to in a way that women understand and is relevant to their lives in North Carolina. So um, essentially, like I would argue it's like a voter education tool. I think I really learned like not only a lot of skills in regards to how to work in an office, but everything from like drafting social media messages to doing graphics on the fly to data entry to donor research to learning how to work do- voter databases to event prep to working events um, to calling donors. So I really I think it was a really wide breadth of projects mm-hmm. that we were doing all the time. So before you um, did your two interviews for this project. Had you ever done any interviewing with people? No, I hadn't. <laughs> or what do you remember being most nervous about in terms of going and doing oh. your interview? I think what I was most nervous about was that I was going to get excited and like over talk them. I think that was like my biggest fear. So I was going to be like, wow, that's a great point. Here's all these things I have to say about it. And because um, that's just like kind of my natural personality is to like engage in conversations really aggressively. And so I had to really train myself to like be a very good listener. It made me a better listener for sure. And also really nervous that I wouldn't have the ability to like quickly analyze what they were saying and like produce a decent question for them to answer. Um, that was kind of a lot of pressure, I think, in active listening and in, and in oral history to be so engaged in your subject that you can constantly have a backlog of like questions to keep digging through the narrative that you are um, trying to help them tell. And I think that was that was a lot of pressure. So um, the first interview I did that we're going to be listening to a clip of is Erin Bird, who is a organizer at Blueprint North Carolina. One of her major victories um, she's talking about in this clip is voters for... Um, publicly funded elections. So essentially she helped institute legislation in North Carolina, the first of its kind in like the country, um, to essentially have voters pay a certain percentage of tax if they opt into it that goes into a pool that then judges pull from to finance their campaigns. So the idea is, of course, that if you take money and special interests out of elections and you have um, the money that is going into a campaign come from people a judge specifically, or any candidate, but in this case specifically, a judge isn't tied to that interest. They're tied to the people who invested in them, which is the general electorate, which is who they obviously should be concerned with anyway. But unfortunately, we live in a reality where campaign finance is very much funded by special interest groups. Um, So she worked with this coalition and actually got that legislation passed, which is like amazing. Um, Unfortunately, the Republicans definitely did not let that stay um, once they took power, but um, it was the first of its kind and really set a precedent for clean elections and the idea of um, putting power back into the hands of the people and having those who represent us represent um, the public's interest. I know that while working for that coalition, you guys got that first piece of actual public-funded legislation passed. That's right. So how was that experience? What was good about it was that, yeah, it was a victory. I can put on my resume or whatever. Um, But what really sticks with me are the relationships that I built with people, built with people doing that work, and a lot of the people that I worked with then I still have relationships now. Um, I think the other thing was how do you get groups of people to work collectively together and I think it was like really a training ground for me I learned a lot from the really smart folks that were part of the coalition at that time so we did something like the color is green and we had like different people from different issues come and talk about how they're affected by campaign finance whether you work for the environment or you work for health care or you work for minimum wage whatever your issue is Money in politics um, impacts that because we don't get to decide who runs for office. The cost of running for office is really high, still is. Average working people can't afford that. 
And so then you're represented by people who are already moneyed up or um, wealthy, you know, and not by working class folks because they got to go to work to pay their bills. Um, and so now I felt like at the time, well, this is really an issue that affects everybody, and it does. Um, but you combine that with the role of government and how the tax system is organized and how the voting system is organized to, um, one, suck all the money out of working class people and then, B, make sure they can't vote. And then campaign finance, we don't have people to represent us in the first place. I mean, it's really, like, it's really, um, they really hoodwinked us into thinking that what, that this democracy, this democratic process is, is working for everybody and everybody has an opportunity to honestly engage in it, and that's actually not true. She sounds a little despairing at that moment. Yeah, that was actually a fairly despairing moment, um, I think, in the interview in general. And But she did sound, um, she went on later to talk about organizing with like the NAACP Moral Monday, and I think she took a lot more hopeful ter- tone as she talked about how coalitions and intersectional organizing can really produce strong, measured fronts against these kind of oppressions. How did the oral history experience connect to or deepen the, the studying that you had done in the classroom? Um, I mean, I think it provided a real-life example of how movement building is difficult and how um, it can't be one person and how you can work in one area but find it doesn't serve you necessarily well and that you need to keep moving and you need to keep building, especially for women of color. And so tell us a little bit about yourself since the Moxie Project. Do you think that this uh, experience had an impact on the direction you took after that? Oh, absolutely. I um, I actually feel fully confident in saying working at Lillian's List and the Moxie Project impacted me in the most direct way possible, as in it shaped what I want to do with my life. Um, so Lillian's List essentially opened my eyes to how policy and politics and how um, investing in the right candidates really can affect like positive progressive change immediately and how state politics specifically are so like undisputably important and I really think in America especially we and young people people my age really overlook how absolutely necessary having the right people in state governments is I mean the Moxie project really taught me that um, one organization small can have like make a great change it doesn't take a lot to really, I think, make people impassioned if you educate them, just provide them the tools to find out about these things. I want to actually, when I graduate in a year, go on to work in political communications. Um, So I would say it's definitely kind of like really opened my eyes to that and really, really um, made me deeply impassioned about government and political work. I went on to work on multiple campaigns after that for for women. Um, I'm trying to work on a campaign this summer. I've so it really has, I think, like completely pushed my path from one end to another end. Um, so, well, I foresee great things for you. I think. Another thing that, that Katie and Cara both point out, the importance of, of background. And when we think about this, the popular idea of feminist activism and of the feminist movement, we often have this image in our head of a middle-class, white, highly educated woman. And 
these oral histories sort of complicate that understanding, bringing in, you know, differences, bringing in intersectionality, you know, differences in, in race and, and feminist activism and sexuality uh, and also in class. And and these oral histories, as, as well as others in our collection, really, really showcase that the, um, it was a diverse community of activists. Right. And one of the reasons we undertook the Long Women's Movement in the American South Project in the first place was that if you read a lot of histories of feminism, you might think that nothing ever happened south of the Mason-Dixon line. And part of what we were setting out to document was, in fact, how the women's movement unfolded differently in different places and to really get a sense of that so that we could contribute to, um, to the archives and also to historical understandings of how social change happened in different places and what women's roles were in that. Thanks for listening to Press Record from the Southern Oral History Program. To find more information, please visit our website at SOHP.org. And if you have any ideas, questions, or concerns, feel free to email us at pressrecordsohp at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us on iTunes if you like us. Taylor, as we always say at the end of an interview, is there anything else we should have talked about?